tonight we're going to um, try to deepen our discussion, if it wasn't deep enough, uh, on the topic of core beliefs and faith. We're kind of transition to the kind of next logical uh, juncture, if you will, uh, of our discussion. Uh, because there's a real, really big problem. It's a little bit of an advanced question, but this is an advanced group, so we could ask an advanced question. And that is, the way we define God presents a fundamental problem with the world we live in. How so? We define God as an entity that lacks nothing. And if the entity lacks nothing, and the entity is also extremely intelligent by any standards, why would an entity that lacks nothing do anything? And yet we see the Almighty created the world. So we have this entity that's perfect, that's lacking nothing, supreme intelligence, yet does something as grand as our universe. Now, it's grand from our perspective. It's elaborate from our perspective. And it's not necessarily elaborate from God's perspective. True. But it's still something. Why was that necessary? It means the Almighty existed from the Jewish perspective, right, before the world was created, before the universe created, before the quote-unquote Big Bang, right? So the Almighty exists beforehand. The Almighty exists after the world's disappeared, if it does disappear. And the question is, okay, why, what compelled the Almighty to create the world, to create the universe, to create mankind, to create 8.7 million species? What was wrong prior? What is thus the purpose of the world at large and the purpose of man specifically that is the function and the meaning behind this very grand creation? It's a little bit of an advanced question. And it's essentially, it's built on a certain premises. Because if we define God as something that's not perfect, well then, of course, if it's not perfect, then it lacks something. And if it lacks something, then, then you would try to fix what you lack. But according to our definition of God, where God lacks nothing, yet we see God lacks nothing, but creates the world. And now, if there's nothing lacking then what, are, what void are we trying to fill to change via creation of the world? So that's a, it's an advanced question that uh, kind of moves a little bit beyond uh, the discussion we've had till now. Um, and this is a question that's widely discussed in, in Jewish philosophy. And I'll, I'll give you guys, there's two classical answers. There's two main themes that... Uh, are the core answers to this very difficult question that we see again and again in Jewish literature. Uh, number one, this is primarily found, uh, it's a very famous sentence, very famous uh, a verse in Scripture in the book of Isaiah, where it says, Kol hanikra bishmi yatsartiv as af I don't think there are any Hebrew speakers here, so I'll translate that. All that is created with my name, I have created for my glory, I have fashioned and perfected. God is saying, everything that I created, why did I create it? For my glory. What essentially the idea is, let's, let's, let's flesh this out a little bit, that everything in the world is created to expand and augment God's kingdom, God's dominion. 
right? God's rulership, God's monarchy, God's control. Uh, and indeed, what we're saying is something that's a very subtle point here. And just, just hear me out, okay, before you jump me with questions. God had control over everything, still has control over everything. Right? God is a ruler. Right? We, we are all playing by his rules. And that was always true, and that's true still today. However, there's a difference between, between being a ruler that has, uh, that dominates and compels and forces the constituents to obey. It's one kind of ruler. We might call that a monarch. And there's another kind of ruler which is called a king, which the people voluntarily adopt that, uh, that king to rule over them. And the theme is as follows. God indeed had all the power. However, his dominion was a little bit lacking because there was no possibility for any dissension. It wasn't possible if there's nothing else that existed besides for God. It's not possible for someone to reject God. When there is a possibility for someone to reject God, yet they choose on their own accord to accept God, well, then it's as if God isn't independently verified. It's as if there's some entity which is independent of God that attests to God's dominion and control voluntarily. Thus, God creates the world. The purpose of the world is not all the ancillary things. It's humanity. And the purpose of humanity, it's not just that humans are so clever or so special, it's that humans have free will. Thus, a human has the ability to accept God or to reject God. There's millions of people in the world that accept God, and there's millions of people in the world that reject God. Right? Humanity is the only entity right, in the entire universe, in all of history, that is able to voluntarily accept God and voluntarily reject God. However, when a human chooses on his own to accept God as the ruler and, con- and, and controller over everything, that is voluntary, that's a product of their own choice, that could have opted otherwise. Thus, God's kingdom becomes not one of, necessar- of tyranny, of compulsion, rather one of a kingdom that we say where the people voluntarily chose to have him rule over them. That's the idea. Thus, this, this is an entire theme, entire realm of, of Jewish philosophy where God creates the world in order to create humans, in order that humans should voluntarily choose God and uh, opt to not reject God. That's number one. Okay, that's the first theme. And if you were to look at the high holiday prayers, for example, the entire theme of Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur is this point, that humans are accepting God's dominion over them. All the prayers that we say in Rosh Hashanah, all the prayers of control over us and, and, you know, and everyone will know that God is in control, and all the prayers, the, the ten verses that we say about God's kingdom, the ten verses, that one after another, after another, God, God's the king, Hashem Elach that we say the whole time, Hashem Yimloch Olam Ve'ed, the prayers that we say in Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, all that is rehashing the central point at the core of Jewish philosophy, and that is that our purpose, our focus, not only our focus, the world's focus, the world's purpose, 
right? What God wants to get out of this, uh, out of this experiment is that we cho- choose God voluntarily. That's number one. The other classical answer given to this very difficult problem uh, is most clearly worded by the Ramchal, by Lutzato, but it's not his idea. He kind of organizes it in a way that's very clear, uh, but he, he, you know, he doesn't invent the idea himself. And that is as follows. Once again, our question is, if God is perfect, lacking nothing, right, why did he create the world? Because obviously he did lack something. What, was, what, what did God lack uh, that compelled him to create the world? Because if he lacked nothing, he wouldn't create the world. Yet our definition of God maintains that he does lack nothing. So the answer that Ramchal gives is as follows. <clears throat> In a world where only God exists, there's no one aside from God. Right? Nothing else existed. Well, God is incapable of giving. Why? Because nothing, there's nothing to give to you. If, if, you know, if you're in a desert and you want to be generous, what do you do? How could you express your generosity in a desert? You can't. There's no receptacle of your goodness. There's no recipient of your kindness. And God exists in a world where there's nothing else aside from God. God creates the world. Now there's someone, something, some entities to whom God could give, to whom God could be kind, to whom God could, can do good to. But there's a catch. When God does things, he does them perfectly. So if God is going to give, he's going to give perfectly. God wants to give the ultimate giving. The ultimate giving has to be a perfect giving where there's no, there's no bad feeling associated with it. Let me give you an example. Let's say you got a really rich uncle. And he's generous. And he says, hey, I, I bought you a car. Wow, he gave you, right? But kind of feel a little weird because you didn't earn it on your own. It's like you're driving the car and it's like, yeah, it's, it's, it's yours but, and, and you feel great but it's still a little bit weird. You, every time you see your uncle, you got you to you know, you gotta, you gotta kiss, kiss up to him. You got to flatter him. You know? Everyone says, oh, you know, where do you get the nice car from? Well, my uncle gave it to me. You know? God doesn't want that kind of giving. He doesn't want the giving where the recipient feels indebted, so to speak to the giver, or the recipient feels a little bit of shame that he had to get. He had to, he had to get a handout. You know, it's, not, it's not fun. Even though, you know, if I said, hey, uh, they're giving out food stamps in the corner. It's free, free, free money. Who doesn't want free money? We all want free money. Yeah, but we don't want to have to go, and we don't want to take handouts. It's not good to get, to get handouts. God did not want to be a welfare state, giving out free handouts to everyone. God wants to give perfectly. How do you give perfectly? By giving people the opportunity to earn goodness. God wants to give. He wants to give perfectly. How do you give perfectly? By giving people the opportunity to earn it and thus feel fantastic about what they got. The goodness that God wants to give is what we call olam haba, the next world. 
That is the definition. The definition of, of, of Olam Abba is the goodness that God wants to give. God wants to give it perfectly. So he gives us the opportunity to earn it. Right? Thus, he gives us the Torah and the mitzvahs, which are our tools to acquire Olam Haba. And he also gives us the free will to exercise in order to achieve that. So essentially, to recap this second position, right? God lacked the capacity of giving. Thus, God created the world to give. But God wants to give perfectly. And how do you give perfectly? You give perfectly by making the recipient earn it. So God wants to give us olam haba, and he gave us the opportunity to earn it via our choosing, via our free will, choosing Torah and choosing mitzvahs, and thus earning olam haba. And we earned it on our own, because we had free will. We had the opportunity to reject the Torah and reject the mitzvahs. Those are the two those are the two uh, answers that are given in classic Jewish philosophy on this question. Why did God create the world? What was he lacking? Either he was lacking that his kingdom was one of compulsion, or he was lacking that he wasn't capable of giving. But I want to stress a very important point, and I'll try to bring this a little bit more down to our uh, discussion. If you examine both of these answers as to why God created the world... Both of them, essentially, they parallel each other. There's a tremendous overlap between the two answers. In both cases, the reason why God creates the world was for humans. More specifically, in both cases, the reason why God creates the world is for humans and their capacity to do free will. Thus, if you want to give a quick answer as to why did God create the world... The one-sentence answer is so that humans can exercise their free will. And by doing our free will, we get Olam Abba. And by doing our free will, we choose God. So essentially, these, are, these are, are, are two sides of the same answer. One of them is God's perspective, and one of them is our perspective. God's perspective is his kingdom is diminished. Like any king, you want to expand your kingdom. Right? How does he do that? By giving people the opportunity to do that via free will. That's God's perspective. What's our perspective? Right? Our perspective is God creates us with the opportunity to have greatness, to have olam abba, to have goodness, to have pleasure, to have all the wonderful things we could possibly dream of and imagine. And he gives us the opportunity via our free will to get that. So if you were to look at a world where people use their free will for good. What is the uh, sum of that kind of world? Two things. Number one, we get a Lama Ba. Number two, God's kingdom is augmented. So essentially the, the, these two answers are not disagreeing. They, 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 they have to be accepted in unison, in concert with each other. We get a Lama Ba by demonstrating God in our lives and our behavior, by, by using our free will to choose good. Um, but this tells us two different things. I, and I, I, I want to just show us, I want to just, just demonstrate here where, where this conversation can go. On one hand, now we can talk about, about free will. Because what does this say about free will? What, what does this idea say about free will? Okay, but it's, it's really everything. 
Free will is everything. Everything that the whole, everything that we know is free will. Everything that matters is free will. Everything that's purposeful and meaningful is free will. From God's perspective and from our perspective, that's what it's all about. Everything, the entire universe, free will. And I'll I'll, I'll just show you how how dramatic that goes. We say that everything that's created in the world, even things that are non-human, are there to create the atmosphere where free will is possible. This table. This table is created because this table presents opportunities for free will. We can use it to study, to pray. We can use it to encourage someone. We can use it to take a nap and we can relax. We can use it to, to sit around and gossip. But this is just one example. Everything, everything that's out there, the entire universe, according to Jewish philosophy, is just a arena, playgrounds for free will. That's what the universe is. That's one angle we could go. I'm not going to talk about free will today. What we're going to look at is the other angle. Is the idea of tikkun olam. And when I say the word tikkun olam, what image pops in your head? What image pops in your head? See, what image pops in your head when you think of tikkun olam? Charity. Charity, okay. What else? Tikkun olam. Everyone's heard that word. The word's ubiquitous. Healing the world. What does that mean? What does that mean? You think repairing the world. This is a... Oh, improving the world. Improving the world. How do you improve the world? What would, it, what would be an example of the Quran that we could do? What would be an example that we would think of? Anybody? Everyone's here heard the words going along, right? Everyone's, everyone's familiar with those words. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not saying new words, right? Going to the hospital, making people feel, feel better. Okay. Helping the helping the homeless. Um, you know, and I, and I think that all these examples are, are are correct. However, there was a tremendous disservice done in the education of Tikkun Olam. It's a little bit of a pet peeve of mine, so you'll pardon my rant that's forthcoming. When we talk about Tikkun Olam, right, what is the, um, what is the, uh, the, the, um, just the standards of our discussion? Like, you know, if we were to kind of give like a, uh, what's the measurement? How, How big of a focus do we have? Tikkun Olam. Fixing the world. And I think there has been a disservice because many people, especially young people, they look at the words in a very narrow sense. They look at it, oh, helping homeless people. Not that that's a bad thing. I'm not trying to say that's a bad thing. Of course that's a good thing. But that's very narrow. That's helping, right? You know, doing a good thing to someone, right? Picking up cigarette butts on a beach, right? That's a nice thing. Beautifying the shore, right? That's a good thing. But that's very, very narrow. The Jewish, the words even, that tells us that our, just our hasagas, right? Our, our, our just idea, our conceptualization of this idea has to be so big, the whole world, tikkun olam. You know, that's what it is. 
And what we, what a lot of people mistaken tikkun olam for is, in fact, symptoms, right, of a fixed world. And I'll explain what I mean here. Uh, if someone, God forbid, is really sick, right, um, so they have a lot of symptoms. And the doctor that wants to address the ill person, right, the clever doctor is not trying to just address the symptoms. They're trying to get to the core of the illness. Correct? Because once you fix the illness, when all the symptoms, you know, they go away as well, right? When we look at tikkun olam, what does that word imply? There's a very unsettling implication that that word has. Right? We've got to fix the world. Well, what is the world if, if we need to fix it? What's the world? If the world needs to be fixed, obviously the world broken. is broken. So we have a broken world, and, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. Why do we have a broken, what's wrong with our world? The world's lovely. Everything works so perfectly. You know, our bodies work wonderfully. The solar system and the water system and the, and the respiratory system and the nervous system and the, you know, and the winds and, and everything's so wonderful. What's lacking? The sun is perfectly the right distance. And, you know, we have a habitable uh, hospitable climate. Uh, it's a wonderful world. Yeah, there's evil in the world. Okay, so there's evil in the world. But what's so lacking about this world that makes us declare that the world's broken? We've got to fix the world. What's this illness that's at the core of this patient that is the world? You know, we, you know, so yes, there's symptoms. Yes, you know, there's evil people in the world. And yes, there's sick people in the world. And yes, there's cigarette butts. It's not a perfectly beautiful world. You know, uh, there's homeless people in the world. All these are symptoms. What's the illness that renders the world so sick that we say this is a world that's ill that we need to fix? We need to heal. That's our job. We're doctors to try to fix this world, right? We're engineers trying to mend the broken world. What's the illness? What is at the core of the problem? Okay. What's wrong with being human? Yetzirah. Okay, that's pretty bad. <laughs> Not believing in God and having a fear of... Not believing in God. Of, of fear of, of him and uh, just not caring. Okay, so you guys are all hitting the, hitting the nail on the head. And I want to just, I want to, I want to, I want to kind of zoom out and try to look for some textual inferences for it to go on. You have to define what the world is. What does the world, what does the word olam mean in Hebrew? That's an amazing point. It's, it's, an, it's an amazing point, and, I, and I'm going to have that addressed in, in a few lines. The first time in Jewish literature that the words tikkun olam appear, anyone knows where that is? It's in the Elenu prayer. The Elenu prayer is one of the oldest prayers that we have. And we say the following words. Litaken olam b'malchut shakai. Right? I'm saying shakai because the, with a Dalit is God's name. We don't say it unless we're praying. To fix the world with the kingdom of God. The core problem, the fundamental flaw, the illness that the world has is the fact that the world does not recognize God. In fact, 
the word olam in Hebrew is the same root as the word he'elem, which means, uh, which means ignoring or losing sight of. Lo tuchalihit alem. You see, the, the, the verse says in, in, in Exodus, if you see the, the donkey or the uh, ox of your enemy struggling under its weight, do not ignore it. The same word as olam. The problem with this world, in fact, the very nature of this world, is that this world obscures God. You can live your entire life from zero to 150 and never once recognize God, never once accept God, never once have a solitary moment of real prayer. That's the fundamental flaw of the world. And that is the root cause of all the other symptoms of illness, of evil, of homelessness, of sickness, of war, of famine. Everything is a symptom of the core problem. You fix the problem, all the symptoms, symptoms follow suit. Go ahead. So what you're saying is it's up to all of us in order to fix the world. We need to somehow attach ourselves to the well, I'm going to get to your point and Steve's point in a second. Okay. A world where God is not present, is not right there, is not available, it's a broken world. A broken world needs to be fixed. But to Steve's question, what does the world mean? So we know the definition of the word olam is obscurity because the world obscures God. How does it do it? So you said, you said Yetzirah, right? So what does the word olam mean? So we find very interestingly in Jewish literature the following. Ha'adam hu olam katan. Man is a small olam. Man and the world at large are both just, you know, they're, they're, they're just different dimensions. Man is a small world. The world is the big world. The world has its fundamental flaw. Man has the fundamental flaw. Same flaw. Both of them that God's not there. And both of them is to, it's obscured. If you guys remember way, 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 way back, it was like two weeks ago, <laughs> We talked about the fact that we have a soul. The soul is buried deep within our, within our body. Our soul is obscured in our own little olam. You, you can live your whole life and not recognize your soul. The world can exist and not recognize God. These are two parallels of the same exact fundamental flaw. And all of our problems that we have in our lives are a reflection of the fact Individually, personally, the fact that our universe, our little world, obscures our soul. Thus, our connection to God is covered up. It's an olam. It's a mess. The world at large is the same problem. And that is that the world at large doesn't have God. It's all covered up. It's, it's, it's olam. It's, it's, it's ignored. You know, we, we don't see it. The only difference is scale. Both of them, right, both us in our lives and the world at large, right, are worlds that need to be fixed. Well, how do you do that? Right? You have to bring God into your personal world. You have to bring God into the big world. Right? Now, how do you do that? How, how do you bring God into the world? How do you bring God into the, How do you do it? How do you bring God into your world? How do you bring God into the big world? And I'll Augment the question, right? What happens when I bring God into the world? What happens when I bring God into my world? Right? I am fulfilling 
the purpose of creation. The purpose of creation is to augment God's kingdom. When I bring God into the world, God's kingdom is augmented. When I bring God into my world, I get a Lama Ba. Both purposes are fulfilled via Tikkun Olam. Voila, how beautiful is that? I want to go a little deeper here. I feel like it's the third time I said that tonight. If we want to really address our problem, if we really want to kind of zone in and understand where the world went wrong and how do we fix the world at large, where us, we personally went wrong and how do we fix our own little world, we have to really examine the problem um, very critically. So I want to look a little bit about kind of the history of idolatry, if you will. Because we find a very lengthy, I'm not going to go through the whole thing, but a very lengthy description of how the world at large got corrupted. And how Abraham, and Abraham is the master of fixing the world because he started what we have pledged to continue. Abraham began the process of fixing the world, both his personal world and the world at large. And uh, the Ram tells us the history of idolatry, essentially, it was a very innocent mistake. Like many terrible atrocities in human history, the initial inspiration was, you know, it was a good one. It was a good idea. It just went so far awry. Essentially, the people said, hey, you know, God created the world, of course. But he also created the sun and the moon and the stars. Doesn't it seem reasonable and logical that God would want us to accord honor or respect to his great creations? That sounds like a reasonable idea. So they said, oh, well, let's accord some honor to God, to to, to the sun and the moon and the stars and everything. And then after some generations, people forgot all about God, and all they were doing is worshiping the sun and the moon and the stars. Comes along Abraham, and he says, no, 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 no. You guys made a mistake. You forgot about God. You got off the train one station too early. And Abraham begins the process of fixing the world, of exposing the idea of God to everyone, of exposing the world to its true potential, to its true purpose, of augmenting the kingdom of God. That's Abraham, the community leader. What about Abraham, the individual? How did Abraham himself, how was his own little olam, how did that reflect this change? When we look in the Torah, uh, let's rewind the tape here. What 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 would we say is Abraham's legacy? What's his greatest accomplishment? What's, What's he the founder of? For monotheism, monotheism, correct? Yeah. All right. That's that's what Maimonides said. That's, you know, that's what he is. That's what he's famous for. He's the you know the father of all the monotheistic religions, correct? When you open up the Torah, you read about Abraham, you find no mention of monotheism. In fact, what you find is kindness. Chesed la Avraham, we say, kindness is for Abraham. Abraham's the master of kindness. What does faith and kindness have to do with each other? 
why would the Torah present Abraham as the paragon of kindness when it could have easily and justifiably presented him as the paragon of faith? Seems like a good question, no? How could it be that Abraham, was he just so good at all the different things? Was he just this renaissance man that he was able to do faith and he was able to do kindness and he was able to do maybe other things? He was just a really well-rounded guy or maybe there's a deep lesson here. Maybe there's a deep correlation between faith and kindness. Well, what would that possibly be? Faith is between man and, man and God and kindness is between man and man. They don't seem to be related in any way. Like this. This is a deep, another deep insight here. What does a man look like when they don't have God in their world? What is the man in their broken, the broken world, the broken little world that we have, where God's not a factor, where our soul is not, not influencing and inspiring us? What do we have? Who is our focus? Who do we care about? Ourselves, exactly. Who don't we care about? Anyone else. We don't care about anyone else. We don't care about God. This is akin to a man who grew up his whole life in a box, in a sealed room. No windows, no doors, no encounters with the outside world. It's just, it's, all he thinks about is me. It's as if their potential is just stifled. What were to happen if we take this room and make a little window? Well, the second we have a window, the man could see the outside, the passerby, the grass, the trees, the birds, the sun, right? the clouds, everything. Man starts off their life selfish. All they see is themselves. Right? Small children don't wake up to tend to their crying mothers the opposite. Right? Oh, a little, little child's hungry, thirsty. Right? What do you do? What does a small child do when they're hungry and thirsty? They scream. They scream. What if it's the middle of the night? doesn't matter. Children are absolutely selfish brats. That's what they are. They live in a box. All they see is themselves. They're brats. What and, and what are we? Are we like children? No, hopefully not. Right? We break a little bit this little box that we're contained in. And then what happens when we open up that box? Well, now there's room for God in our life. Now there's room for kindness, other people in our lives. The Torah is telling us a great lesson with Abraham. Abraham, if you were to look, of course, at the world and how he changed the world, we all know how he changed the world. But what did Abraham himself look like? What was his own personal world? What was that comprised of? Abraham, the Torah says, is the paragon of kindness. Abraham opened up his windows and his doors and his whole life he destroyed the box. He was selfless. He lived for everyone else. He lived for God. Once he opened up the window for God, there's room for everyone else in the world there as well. These two things indeed are related because the opposite of kindness and the opposite of faith are the same thing, selfishness. If you don't have kindness, you're selfish. If you don't have faith, you're selfish. If you have one, it's very easy for you to have the other as well. 
Thus, the Talmud, could go very, Talmud says in the book of Sukkah 49b, anyone who has kindness certainly has fear of heaven. What? What do they do with each other, right? The answer is, once you open up the window and you really allow someone else into your world, the window's open, right? There's no more barrier between you and God as well. Your world is fixed. You're not a broken world. Your own little world is somewhat fixed. So, when we talk about the world at large, so, so what's, what's the role of Jews? What's the, what's the idea of chosen people? Right? Chosen people. We're better than everyone else. More handsome, more intelligent. What, what, what are we chosen? The reason why we're chosen, it's not random, because we were chosen out of a lottery. We are chosen because we happen to be the descendants of Abraham. Abraham was the person who began the tremendous movement of Tikkun Olam. He did it with himself personally. He did it with the world at large. Now, he began something that's not quite yet completed. In Abraham's times, yes, there were some people, a lot of people, that believed in God because of Abraham, but the vast majority of the world didn't. So there was still work to be done. The world's not completed. We don't have a fixed world. There's still plenty of of tikkun to do. And therefore, our God says, okay, Abraham, your descendants, your children, they are going to be tasked with the responsibility of finishing the job, of fixing the world completely. So we have a Torah. Why does the chosen people, the sentence of Abraham, why do we have a Torah? Well, what's the role of the Torah? The Torah is man's guidelines to breaking those windows, breaking out from the box. That's what the Torah is about. It's about becoming not selfish. Well, how do you become unselfish? Maybe you become selfish by, by, by denying yourself certain things that you want. It's 365 of them, precisely. The Torah says, don't do things that you want to do. Well, wait, I want to do it because I'm selfish, right? Well, what happens when I don't do it? I become less and less selfish. The Torah is a guideline for us to become true Abraham descendants. The Torah is a guideline for us to become like Abraham, to fix our own little world as an individual. Our nation, our chosen people, we're descendants of Abraham. We have tikkun olam in our blood. We have it beating through our soul. We have the potential to really do it because you know why? We're cut from the same cloth as Abraham. We're Abraham's descendants. Abraham instilled within us this tremendous power to change the world. We're a chosen nation for a sacred responsibility to finish Abraham's job and to fix the world. That's what it means, chosen people. Chosen people is the people that were chosen, not randomly, but because we are descendants of Abraham, and therefore we were chosen, or we perhaps Abraham chose for us, that we're going to fix the world 
completely. We're going to finish what Abraham started. That's what it means. The Torah is our guideline for it. Thus, suddenly, all these disparate ideas are coming into clear focus. We see from the beginning God's purpose and how the purpose essentially boils down to Tikkun Olam. We see Abraham as the one man who decided on their own to take upon this resp- on themselves this responsibility of doing it. Thus, his descendants are chosen to be the people that finish it. And God pledges to Abraham, your kids will never disappear. No matter what terrible things happen to them, no matter how many times they're, you know, they're expelled from the land, no matter how many inquisitions and expulsions and exiles and holocaust, no matter what your kids go through, they'll survive. Why? Because the very existence of the world depends upon them. They're the only ones who could do it. They're the only people that are motivated by the Abrahamic zeal of changing the world. We're the only people that could do it. We've got to be around. If we're not around, humanity's lost. Humanity's doomed. And that's why we have steadfastly adhered to the Torah. Because the Torah is the only hope for mankind. It's the only hope for the entire world. The entire universe depends upon the Torah. Why? Because the Torah makes us, guides us to fix the world and thus to accomplish the purpose that it was all created for. The Torah is the only hope for mankind. It's the only hope for the universe. It's certainly the only hope for the Jewish people. What happens? Jews don't know this. They think the Quran means picking up cigarette butts on the on the beach. So they think it is. Or visiting them. I'm not saying there's nothing wrong with that. Of course there's nothing wrong with that. And they think, oh, visiting the sick. Yeah, of course you visit the sick. Right? What Tikkun Olam really is, is that the entire fate of all of humanity, of all the species, of all the universe, of all the cosmos, rests upon our shoulders as Jews. Everything depends upon us. Failure is not an option. Fixing the world, the world is in balance, in flux. And it's in our hands to do it. And if we don't do it, every, everyone's doomed. Everyone and everything's doomed. And the Torah is the only way we could do it. And we're the only people that can do it. And what happens when Jews say, you know what? I want to opt out. Right? There's no opt-out clause. That wasn't part of the agreement. And you know, if someone who's non-Jewish wants to accept upon themselves the responsibility, they're welcome to join. Right? But us, as descendants of Abraham, we are tasked. We were, this, this was accepted for us. We cannot opt out. And what happens when a Jew tries to opt out? It doesn't work really well. There isn't the great history of Jews abandoning Torah and that continuing uh, for many generations. Every single time in Jewish history that the Jews have decided to abandon their mission within, it could be a generation, it could be two generations, it could be a couple hundred years, but within some time, I don't think it's ever been more than 200 years, there is a tremendous backlash in the form of anti-Semitism. Tremendous. It's happened every single time. And that's because anti-Semitism is God's way 
of ensuring that the Jews stick to their mission. Don't deviate too far away from it. We should have this argument, and I will, I will argue anyone here who's interested in engaging with me on this. There's no rational, reasonable, logical reason why anti-Semitism exists. Every reason that you've read about is an excuse. It's not a real reason. Right? The Talmud tells us why we have anti-Semitism. Talmud says the reason why we have anti-Semitism is because by Har Sinai, by Mount Sinai, Sinai came to the world. By Mount Sinai, where our nation was formed, and what's special about our, at our nation were chosen? Chosen for what? Chosen for fixing Abraham's mission, completing what Abraham started. At Mount Sinai, sin'ah, hatred came down to the world. What is hatred? Why, why, why all the hate, Rabbi? Why is there hatred? Why do we need hatred? What, what's, how does that fit into the picture? The answer is like this. Because when Jews deviate away from their responsibility, when they decide to opt out, they want to abandon the Sinai destiny. They want to abandon the Abrahamic mission. They want to say, oh, not for me. I don't want to fix the world. I'm going to fix myself. I want to abandon the Torah. God says, oh, you want to abandon the Torah? That's not going to happen. Why? Because a tremendous force will be unleashed. The Sin'ah, which is the flip side of Sinai, which will compel you to bring about the Tikkun Olam, even if you don't want to. <laughs> Essentially, what we can say is like this. We are going to do it. We are going to fix the world. What is in our hands is how we're going to do it. Either with Sinai, Sinai, or Sin'ah. With Sinai, with hatred. Either way, the destiny is the same. Either way, we teach the world about God. Either way, we complete what Abraham began. Either way, the world emerges fixed. We is our nation. We, is it the Arab Bahamas and the ISIS who say fix the world? It's the Jewish nation, that's right. All of us combined. What do you mean? Fixing the world. What are, what are we saying about? Well, there's a private, every, every Jew has a responsibility to fix themselves and to fix whatever they can of the world. But collectively as a nation, the Jewish nation is the nation that's chosen to fix the world like their forefather Abraham started. That's right. So That's right. Mashiach is the, 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 the ultimate solution. No, Mashiach is what, what the world looks like after we're done. After we're done. Is there not the antithesis uh, the other descendants of Abraham? Yes, yeah, so the Rambam tells us the Rambam tells us is that the role of Islam and Christianity as being also Abrahamic derivatives, right? Because Edom is the forefather of Rome, which is the forefather of Christianity. And that comes for, through Esau, Jacob's brother. And of course, we know the Arabs uh, is Ishmael, which is, the, uh, which is the Muslims. And the Ram tells us that they are our partners, so to speak, in helping us bring the world towards its completion. Uh, because they, they too descend from Abraham, even though they're not quite perfect, you know, not quite the Jewish people, not quite the chosen chosen people, but they're still they're still influenced by the Abrahamic influences. That's like this. <clears throat> to bring this all back uh, 
uh, to bring all this all back uh, to uh, to where we started. When we ask the question, what is the purpose? There's several answers to that. But really, if you actually do the mathematics and you work it through, you'll notice that both answers are two reflections of the same idea. Both of them amount to Tikkun Olam. One of them is from our perspective, we get the goodness, that's Olam Abba. One of them is from God's perspective, the God's kingdom gets augmented. Regardless, the result's the same. Abraham chose to be the one to spearhead the effort to actually get this done. Therefore, he chose, and thus his descendants were chosen. And our Torah is a tool book to do it. And anti-Semitism, unfortunately, is the safeguard to it. And for us, when we look at the world in its completion, we can read the rest of the rest of the prayers, right? Right? To fix the world kingdom. What does that what does that look like? Let me read you the rest of the rest of the prayer. And all humanity will call out in your name to turn all the earth's wicked towards you, towards God. All the world's inhabitants will recognize and know that you that to you every knee shall bend, every tongue shall swear. This is from the Elena prayer. Before you, Hashem, our God, they will bend every knee and cast themselves down to the glory of your name. Uh, will, uh, uh, they will render homage, uh, interesting translation, and they will all accept upon themselves the yoke of your kingship that you may reign over them soon and eternally for, your kingdom, for the kingdom is yours and you'll reign for all eternity in glory as written in the Torah, Hashem shall reign for all eternity. That's the prayer that we say. We are describing a vision that Abraham saw as well. Now he got it started he got the flywheel spinning. And our nation is responsible to get it done. And indeed, we can do it, we must do it. Right? Because there's no option for failure. Right? Remember, the entire world rests upon our shoulders. Tremendous, tremendous responsibility. Uh, you know, if non-Jews, they have a responsibility as well. But their responsibilities for themselves... And their responsibility is, not, you know, is, is that they should accept God, but not become people that totally change themselves the way Abraham did. To open up these windows and become selfless. And however, if they want to choose to adopt it, they're welcome to do it, but they have to re- recognize the responsibilities that are included in, in you know, what this actually means. But either way, like this to us, you know, you know, if the if one thing maybe we take away from this, when we say Tikkun Olam, we don't mean visiting sick people, we don't mean picking up cigarette butts, we don't mean feeding the hungry. Of course, those are all wonderful things. What we mean is to fix the world, as big of a scope and as large of a scale as you possibly imagine. The world's broken, the world's ill. There's something fundamentally wrong with it. All these are symptoms of a broken world. We fix the world, the symptoms follow. We have the guidebook to fix the world, that's the Torah. We have the charge and the mission and the destiny to fix the, to fix the world, that's the chosen people. And unfortunately, we have the safeguards as well, which is anti-Semitism, which assures that we cannot veer too far away from our mission. Next week, we'll begin uh, with showing, demonstrating throughout history how Tukun Olam has actually been undertaken uh, to do that. But either way, uh, you know, when we're asked the question as to what is the purpose of it all, there's a lot of nuance in it. There's detail, there's two main answers, and it all results in the Quran, and we see indeed how the Jewish people are at the forefront 
of this great and sacred mission that Abraham began, and hopefully we will complete thus ushering in the new era, which is like what Dave said, that's the Messianic era. And we'll get to more about that next week, exactly how that actually works. Thanks a lot, guys. Look forward to seeing you next time. Any questions?